Grab a seat. Well, howdy. My name is Kevin Barra. I'm the college pastor over at our Southwood campus, and I am so excited to be with you here this morning. If you have a Bible, there are two places I want you to flip to this morning. One for your little tassel of your Bible, um, the other one for us to be it. And we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, looking at verses 10 through 17. The other place I just want you to kind of put your finger or put your little tassel from your Bible is uh, Matthew chapter 4. So Ephesians 6, Matthew 4, both in the New Testament, and it will be exciting. I'm going to read a little bit for us from Ephesians chapter 6. Um, as you're flipping there, a little bit about me. Um, I, I worked here at this campus for about 10 years, and uh, for the past year and a half, I've been over at Southwood doing college ministry, and so excited to be back over here um, Brian, uh, in, in doing some, some things this week, said, hey man, I would love for you to come and, and share from Ephesians with, uh, with the people over at Anderson, with the folks over at Anderson, and I was just so excited to come back and see some friends. Um, uh, this place is such a great, has a great place in my heart, so I'm excited to be back here with you guys. Um, I have a wife, uh, Hillary, who's a veterinarian. I've got four amazing children, a seven-year-old daughter named Peyton, a six-year-old son named Micah, a four-year-old son named Jesse, and an almost two-year-old daughter named Juliet. And so life's easy, you know, just like simple, not a lot going on there. Um, yeah, it's insane, and, uh, it, but it's been, it's been so much fun. So excited to be with you here this morning. So Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, says this. Now finally... Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all the stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having your shoes of your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this passage. And Lord, this is a a, a bit of a scary passage in the Bible because it really depicts life in a battle. It puts life in a war. And and I know for many of us, thinking about life as a war is is scary because that's what we're trying to avoid, not what we're trying to create. But Lord, I pray that as we see this this passage in Scripture, we'd see it in context, that our our enemy isn't fleshly, it's, it's, it's spiritual. That there is something going on beyond the surface that we need to see. And Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds not to be seeing demons around every corner, but seeing the reality that there is a spiritual dimension to life that we need to be aware of. And if you'd be willing, I'd ask that you would pray for yourself, that your heart and mind would be open to what God would want to speak specifically to you this morning. And if you'd be willing, uh, I'd ask that you pray for me, that my mind would be clear And I'd be helpful to you this morning. Father, we love you. We trust you. 
We ask that you use this time that you would help us to be armed by your power. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, when I first came to Texas A&M University, I was visiting as a high school junior. And I was visiting to see the lay of the land, like to get uh, perspective on what campus was like and maybe think about coming to school here. And I came and I mistakenly was walking on the side of this building and I didn't really know where I was. I hadn't really been here before. My parents didn't come to a and I wasn't familiar with all the, all the things going on here. And, and I mistakenly on the side of the building was standing on some green stuff. You know, there's some, some grass. And as I'm standing there on that grass, there was a nice gentleman in khaki that came up behind me. said, what are you doing? Get off the grass. And I'm like, what are you saying? Like, I was just confused about what he was yelling at me about. And it was a couple of years later, um, I came on staff here at Grace, and we went on a youth retreat. And it was so much fun. It was at the end of the year, and being around Aggies all year was so good. And, and getting around the culture, I, I was learning more. And there came a moment at the end of, of everything. It was kind of like a little dance party, and they started playing the Aggie War Hymn. Now, I'd never heard the Aggie War Hymn. And we stand in a circle, and they're like, hey, put your leg here. And I'm like, what are y'all doing? And, and they're like, okay, put your arms around here. I'm like, okay. And they're like, and we're going to start swaying. We're going to start this way. You know, they're all you know, doing the whole thing. And I'm like, what is going on? And they start playing this song. And as the song's going, we're like singing along. I'm like, okay, this is fun. And then they start singing about um, defacing cattle, you know? <laughs> There's sawing going on. There's like all sorts of other, you know, things that they're, they're wanting to kill and, 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 and hurt with cattle. And I'm standing there in this moment going like, there's stuff going on here that I'm not aware of, right? There's a history that I don't know. And there's an enemy that I'm unaware of. And as I looked at that moment, I was like, okay, there is more going on than what I can see. There is something beneath the surface. And it was great to learn the reason for the traditions, right? The reason for the histories. We wanted to honor people that have given their life for the sake of something great that we might live. And there's this, this great orange enemy, right? That we needed to be unified against, right? There was, there was, there was something there that was oppressive and we needed to stand against them. And, and seeing this history and this enemy brought clarity for so many reasons for the things that people were doing. It just, everything made a lot more sense. And the reason I start there is because this, there, there's a reality that there is a history and there's an enemy that you may not be aware of. There is more going on beneath the surface. And all you have to do is watch fantasy fiction movies and you see that, that there's this, this desire to understand that other thing. Desire to understand a little bit more about what's going on. And every fantasy movie depicts a world at war and depicts an enemy that's out there. Harry Potter, right? Long ago, young Harry is sleeping underneath this, you know, his staircase and he's visited by, young, by Hagrid. He comes to him and says, look, you are a wizard, Harry. Right? There's more going on than what you see. And he suddenly enters into an entirely new world. Years ago, the movie The Matrix, right? Young guy working in a cubicle, just trying to figure out life, wondering why he, doesn't, he hates his life. And then he's visited by a man who says, take this pill or this pill. And you can see how deep the rabbit hole goes, right? Not just that movie, Chronicles of Narnia. There's your Christian version, right? Little kids in a creepy house, what are they going to do? 
They're going to scour around everywhere, kind of see all that's going on, and then they're going to take a step through a wardrobe and suddenly see a little bit more going on. Their eyes are going to be opened up. And even more modern recently, the TV series Stranger Things. No, you haven't? Okay, well. There's a thing called Netflix. And... um, (laughs) There's like these shows that people watch, and one of them is Stranger Things, and it's about these kids that encounter this entirely new dark world. They've broken through the breach, and they suddenly see an enemy out there that's much more dark and devastating than they would ever have thought. See, this morning, I want us to open up the curtain to peel back the reality. There is more going on in this world than what we see. There is something beneath the surface. And really, the the Bible depicts a world at war. There is a war. And there are two primary forces in this war. We see it in verse 10 and 11. It says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And right there, we get the two main characters, the two main powers at play. There is God and there's the devil. There's the Lord and there's Satan. There are two major forces out there in the world. And as soon as I say that, you're like, okay, Kevin, you had me with the cool movie references. But at this point, you've lost me. Like a world at war, the devil, the dude in tights with little horns, like that guy, like that's what we're talking about. C.S. Lewis was an Oxford professor when he came to faith. And as he started reading the Bible seriously, he wrote this. He says, C.S. Lewis said, One of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talks so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who held the power behind death and disease and sin. The difference is that Christianity thinks that this dark power was created by God and was good when he was created and went wrong. Christianity agrees with dualism, like there's two powers, that the universe is at war. But it does not think of the war between independent powers. It thinks it's a civil war, a rebellion, and that we are living in a part of the universe occupied by the rebel. He says, I I see, as I read the Bible, it really depicts this cosmic battle. There's a war going on. And as I say that, you're like, okay, Kevin, come on. We live in modern culture, right? We live in the modern day. Really a world at war? Like demons around every corner? Are we going to like blame the tree fairies for everything bad that happens? Like, is that really where we're going this morning? Well, let me just say, The Bible is much more nuanced than that. It doesn't blame everything on the supernatural. In fact, what what you'll see several times in, in Scripture is that sometimes the Bible prescribes simple, everyday solutions to problems. In fact, that's what our modern medicine would do. They would say, in our modern medicine, sometimes there's environmental factors for problems. Sometimes there's psychosis or other mental issues going on. So sometimes medication should be prescribed. Sometimes environments that people grow up in are the problem. But in modern psychology, modern um, thinking, it sees everything in the physical universe. And the Bible is saying it's much more nuanced than that. There are physical problems. And the Bible sometimes provides physical solutions to physical problems. Jesus, when he's tired, he sleeps. He doesn't say, 
it's the sleep demons, right? Like he's like, I'm going to take a nap, right? When he's hungry, he eats. He's not like, it's hunger demons. Like, no, he, he eats some food, right? When Paul is advising Timothy, Timothy's having some stomach issues. He says, look, drink some wine to calm your stomach. When people are having emotional issues, he says, look, encourage one another. Like step into one another's life and they'll be like, it's the discouragement demon. No, just encourage one another. Step alongside one another. Or what you even see uh, um, in, in, is a healing remedy. It's not always demonic things that are causing rem- um, disease or, or sickness. He says sometimes pour oil on someone. That's a, that was a remedy that they could use in that day and age. So sometimes there's physical solutions to physical problems. But what the Bible is saying, there's actually a little bit more to it. There is more to the world than what we see in the physical dimension. Sometimes it's environmental. Sometimes it's medication needed for some, some mental instability. But sometimes there's, there's another layer. Sometimes there's a spiritual dimension going on that we need to be aware of. And if you look across our world and you see the atrocities that, that have taken place, if you looked at the, the, Hutus and the, the Hutus and the Tutsis and the civil war that occurred um, in Africa, you saw that they would kill Christians, load up churches with their bodies, and burn the whole thing, committing genocide. And you would say, there's got to be something more than just environmental factors that created this. When you see the Holocaust, the systematic annihilation of a people, you'd say, there's got to be something more than just bad upbringing that created this. There's something bigger out there in the world. And the Bible says, yes, there's a dark force called Satan. And he set up a system. C.S. Lewis says it this way. Enemy-occupied territory. That's what this world is. We are living in enemy-occupied territory. There's two sides, and there's a system that Satan has set up. It says this way in in 2 Corinthians 4. It says, in their case, the God of this world, that's one of the titles given to Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He says, look, there's a God in this world, and he's at work. And the way that he works is he confuses us. He he blinds us. He, He keeps us from seeing what's true because of a system that he has created. There is a system that Satan has taken and overlaid this world, and it shapes how we see, what we value, what we prioritize, and that is his work in this world. That is the war that he's created. 1 John 2 says it this way, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. That's the system Satan has set up. He set up a system where we celebrate the, boast, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh is simply this. It's the, the materialistic, egocentric, exploitive selfishness we see in the world. It's the fleshly desires. It's those desires to, to get more material items. To, to surround ourselves with, what's, with, with what we primarily want to satisfy our personal desires. It's living egocentrically. And you're like, Kevin, do people really do that in America? Maybe one or two. There might be one or two, and that's his system. It's the lust of the eyes, which it can refer to sexual lust, but it can mean anything that entices the eyes. 
Watch any commercial anywhere. Years ago, it was Axe Spray, right? Young 13-year-old boys going, oh, please get a girl, you know, just like spraying themselves. And then you can have this. Like literally, if you were to look at most, um, most promotion of products, it has nothing to do with the product. It has everything to do with if you get this, then you can get that. The entire enticement of much of our advertising industry is about the lust of the eyes or the boastful pride of life. That is basically the status symbol of is, is what's most important to me. One commentator writes it this way. When I define myself to others in terms of my honorary degrees, my reputation, my annual income, the size of my library, my expensive house or cars, is if I'm doing any of these things, that's the pride of life. Is that a problem in the world today? Do we operate under the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of what I've accomplished in my life? Do we see that play out? And, and I think if you look a little bit, you would see those are the values of our culture. That is what it means to be an American, right? You can win in America. And what does that mean? You can get all that you want, accumulation of possessions, accumulation of success. Those are our stars. That's who we celebrate. And the Bible says, yes, that system in that way is what Satan has set up. And he has a strategy. There are two sides. There is a war. And Satan has a strategy to get us to fall into it. And you've got to know his strategy. You've got to know how he uses this to get you. Verse 11 says it this way. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That word schemes is the Greek word methodia. It's where we get our word methods. It's another way to describe uh, tactics or literally schemes. It's, think about it like a football team, right? Every football team, as they're facing a new challenge, Ole Miss, right? As they're facing a new challenge, they come up with schemes. They come up with strategies. There are people to take out. There are ways to gain ground. There are weaknesses in the offense and the defense that they want to exploit. There are schemes that a football team plans to attack someone, and it says, Satan schemes on you. He studies you. He has a schematic system in that he is watching you. Genesis 3.1 says it this way. When he looks at the very early first temptation, it says this of Satan. Now the serpent, that's, that's describing Satan, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had, God had made. You see, Satan was at one point eternally with God. He was an anointed cherub. He was one of the highest ranking angels and he was beautiful and glorious and he was lifted up because of his beauty. He became proud. And so God cast him out of heaven and from the very creation of this world, Satan has been at work to deceive us, to pull us from God and to his purposes. So he studies you. But secondly, he then moves to attack you. Ephesians 6.12 says it this way. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, 
against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He says, look, there is Satan who's in power, and he's in power over people, over angels that influence other things. There are cosmic forces at play, and they are confronting together to attack us. He says this, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, meaning your primary enemies are never human. Your primary problems are not that person at work. You're like, but you don't know her, Kevin. Okay. She's not the primary enemy. The primary enemy is not your boss. Kevin, you don't know him. Like he is a cosmic power of darkness. Negative. Your primary enemies are never human. It can play out in opposition in human form. Paul had human opposition. But there's something bigger than whatever you might be facing. And so when you look at conflict, when you look at challenges, the primary issue is never the person. There is something bigger going on. There is a force that's reckoning, that's doing some things in and through that person. There are some lies that they have bought into. And he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against them. The word for wrestle there is basically described close hand-to-hand combat. It's like Greco-Roman wrestling. It's saying we wrestle, we fight. And it says against, it's the Greek word pros. It means a face-to-face encounter. We face cosmic forces of evil. And you may not see it that way, but that's exactly what happens. And the main way that we encounter this is through lies. Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 44, you speaking of these Jewish people who are opposing him, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. See, he lies, and he brings people into his lies to attack, to condemn. And for many of us, the spiritual war we encounter is not primarily people. It's that cosmic force that's influencing the way we think and therefore the way we act. And there's only a few moments in the Bible where you actually see this warfare play out. You see it in, in the book of Job. You see it early on in, in Genesis. And there's not a ton of places in the New Testament where you see this war depicted. You see it with Daniel. But with Jesus, you see literally the battle that takes place that honestly, that we need to be a part of. Because the way Jesus fights in this moment is also the way that we fight. And so I want to show you in this moment is, is his tactics against Jesus. The way that Satan approached and, and tried to tempt and pulled Jesus off course. So in Matthew chapter 4, we see it play out this way. Matthew chapter 4, you can flip over there, starting in verse 1. It says this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, which makes sense, right? It's a long time without food. And it said that moment... When Jesus is at his weakness, that he begins to unleash his tactics. 
See, that's what Satan looks for in you. He looks for when you're weak, when you're tired, when you're hungry, when you're stressed, you know, at your best, right? (laughs) He looks for those moments of weakness and says, how can I exploit him? What tactic can I use on him or her to pull them off the course of God and lead them into my purposes? And so the first temptation comes and it's the lust of the flesh. He says, and a tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, as written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The first temptation is this, Jesus, I know you're hungry and you're God, right? So just make the bread, make the stones bread, make, make this food for yourself. Take your own power into your own hands. You can do this. You are capable of doing this on your own. Just take your power into your own hands. Feed yourself. It's the lust of the flesh. You can take what's yours when you want it. He says, no, I'm not going to do that. And then the second one comes, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city. And set him on the pinnacle of the temple. That's the temple of Jerusalem, one of the highest points there. And he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they'll bear you up. Which when I first read this, I was like, how is that a temptation, right? Like, go jump off the building. It'll be great, you know? Like, how was that tempting? Well, what Satan was doing is saying, look, you can prove your messiahship by jumping and showing everyone you're going to float down from heaven. It was expected that the Messiah would come down from heaven. He would prove himself to be the the one. He says, look, you can put yourself in everyone's eyes as a person of power, a person of significance. You can look good in their eyes. It's the lust of the eyes. You will look good if you do this. He says, I'm not going to do that. And third one, verse 8. And the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to them, all of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. He says, I will give you every kingdom on the earth. Now, does Jesus own every kingdom on the earth? You bet he does. Is Jesus going to rule over everything physically at some point in time? You bet he is. Is he going to restore everything to how it should be and show himself to be the king over everything? You bet. Satan's giving him what is his future with no pain. You can have everything. It just won't cost you as much. All glory, no cross. This is about you, Jesus. This is about you owning what's rightfully yours. You can prove that you're the best. You can have it now. You can have your cake and eat it too and not even have any cross, no burial, no resurrection, not this weird time where we're trying to tell people about Jesus and he's not coming. None of that. You will rule immediately, eternally in a moment. And Jesus says, I see what you're doing. You're appealing to my pride that I could be king with no cross, but that's not the path that I'm going to take. You see, in every one of these moments, Satan is looking for a weakness. He can appeal to his flesh. He can appeal to his eyes. He can appeal to his pride. He can say, how can I get him down? And I tell you what, Satan will do the same thing to you. He'll look at your weaknesses, the kinks in your armor, and see what he can exploit. 
And what Jesus did in this moment is what we need to do. You see, in this moment, Jesus didn't, doesn't defeat Satan. Like he, he will ultimately defeat Satan. Satan doesn't have a hold on believers. He, hasn't, he, doesn't, he, has, he has freed us from his grip, but he doesn't defeat him finally. He doesn't annihilate him at this moment. There will come a moment when he defeats Satan fully, but all Jesus does at this moment is stand. He stands against the onslaught. And let me tell you what, Christian. The goal of the Christian life isn't to beat Satan down. You don't have the tools. You do not have the power. Neither do I. The goal in the Christian life is simply to stand. And that's why over and over and over again in this passage, Paul says, I want you to stand. I want you to withstand the onslaught of the enemy. And verse 13 says it this way. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. The goal of the Christian life isn't primarily taking ground from, the, from Satan. You can't. That's God's job. Our, God, our job as Christians is to withstand the onslaught that will come. And in order to do that, in order to engage in a spiritual fight, you have to have spiritual weapons. In order to win a spiritual battle, you've got to be armed with the right weapons. And that's what Paul lays out in this last section. He says, these are the things that need to surround you. This is how you withstand in the evil day. What is the evil day? It's the day when evil comes to you. It's the day when you're weak. It's the day when you need to stand. It's when you feel at your lowest moment, Paul says, this is what you have to have on to stand. And he gives six items. Six items to be outfitted with to have your stand. And those are are simply, I want to explain them to us as best we can and see how they actually defeat the onslaught of the enemy. The first thing is this, that we are fastened with the belt of truth. For a Roman soldier, they had a belt that went on under everything else. And it was a belt that had uh, um, leather things that were, would come down from it to cover it. Sometimes called a girdle, which is cute, right? And he would wrap it around himself. And the point of the belt was to hold everything else, every other piece of armor in place. So it would hold up uh, his cloak if, it would, if, it was, if he needed to run. It was basically there to hold everything in place on the soldier. And he says, look, the first thing I want you to think about is having a belt of truth. I want you to have truth around you that keeps everything else together. See, Satan is a liar. And the only way to combat lies is with the truth. I was talking with a college student the other day. And uh, he worked in one of the garages on campus. And he was talking about a letter that he'd received from a person who was angry about something that had happened. And the letter basically said this, um, you need to figure out how to, how to stop the sun from shining so bright. And he read the letter and was like, what are you saying? Stop the sun from shining? That is above my pay grade. I don't know how to do that. Right, And so, if you didn't know this, um, the garages around campus have video surveillance on everything. And so immediately they're like, we got to go watch the video on this thing, right? And so they go back to the date and time for this person who owed money uh, to, the, to the garage to fix 
basically a broken, one of those arms. He had broken the arm and he owed money. And the guy's response was, well, you need to fix the sun. Okay, well, let's go watch the video. And they see a guy on a moped zipping around one layer after another and going all the way out the exit. But he didn't see, because the sun was too bright and he was going too fast, that he was going to run right into the arm. He ran into the arm, and it says, they watched it on video, him hit the arm, fly off his moped, like stumble around and be like, okay, and, and try to stand back up. And my friend said, you have missed what's true. What's true is this. The sun is going to be bright. Your speed is the problem. And when you come head to head with reality, you're going to lose. Here's the truth. There are realities in the universe. There are fixed truths that once you come against, no matter how much you want it not to be true, if you, if you believe lies, you'll end up in a broken place. You've got to have truth surrounding you. There's two truths. One is Jesus as the son of God, the living word. The second is the word of God, that he, he speaks truth and everything that he speaks is true. It corresponds with reality and you won't be left broken if you line yourself up with that reality. See, Satan's a liar and he's going to get us to believe lies. He's going to get you to believe lies about your sexuality. He's going to say there's no, there's no reason for barriers. There's no reason to hold yourself to those standards. He's going to tell you lies about morality. Hey, do this. It won't hurt anyone. And then every now and then you watch someone live by those decisions and come face to face with truth. So this summer, an FBI um, chief in counterterrorism woke up after a, a night of drinking and sleeping with uh, dancers, discovered that his Rolex watch, $6,000 watch, was stolen, and so was his gun. There's an investigation, and he lost his job. We live in a world that says, look, there's no boundaries on sexuality. There's no barriers to your morality. It baits you to the edge of disaster. And when you engage, we condemn you when you fall. See, this man was simply living according to culture. What was wrong with this? What was wrong with this is that when he came face to face with truth, he realized he was going to be broken. You see, you've got to have truth that guides your decisions, that guides your life, because otherwise you will come up against it and it will derail you. He says, I want truth to be centered around you. That's that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the way that he asks you to live life is the best way to live life. We submit our lives to him, to truth, but not just truth. We have a breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate was a piece of metal that would go um, across your front and as well as your back, protecting you from from stabs or, 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 or spears. It would protect you. It was a defensive place. He says, I want you to put on a breastplate of righteousness, meaning... I want you to have something that protects your heart, your core, that is righteous. Your righteousness is this, you're standing before God. And some of us would say, okay, so my standing before God means I need to be pure. Like I need to be perfect. I need to not make mistakes ever. But that's not righteousness. Paul describes righteousness as a gift. It is the gift of God. The reformers would call it the great exchange. 
See, Martin Luther, when he was a, a young monk, wrestled with the righteousness of God because he thought he was a standard. He had to reach something he had to do to attain. And so he beat himself against God saying, I can't live righteously. I cannot do enough. And finally he read in Romans when it says, the righteousness of God is a gift from faith to faith. The righteousness of God is a standard that has to be met. And Jesus Christ met the standard. You know what the great exchange is? It's the best news you've ever heard. It means when you put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, everything you've ever done wrong, thought wrong, thought to think wrong, will do wrong, past, present, present, and future, everything is put on the cross of Christ and taken away. And you know what's given to you? Not just a clean start. His bank account. His righteousness. It'd be like this. If you blew all of your money, times a bagillion, right? Somehow they let you have an unlimited tax or whatever, uh, unlimited like a, on your credit card, you could spend whatever you wanted up to a bagillion million dollars, right? And you blew through all of that somehow. You bought homes, you bought cars, you bought islands, like you bought, I don't know, Texas, you know, you just spent it on everything. And you owed more than you could ever earn in a thousand million lifetimes. That's the way Jesus describes it. And he walks in and says, all that's wiped away. And not only is all that wiped away, you get my wealth. You get everything. So when you stand before Satan or the enemy or someone accusing you, you don't stand on your own merit, you stand on his You don't stand on what you have accomplished. You stand on what he has accomplished. If you were to walk into heaven and God, it won't happen like this, but he was asked, why should I let you into heaven? It's not because of anything that you have done or anything that you will do. He says, look, I put my faith wholly and solely in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. And on that declaration, on his righteousness, you get in. He says, I want you to keep that righteousness close to your heart. Because that will give you stability to stand. But not only the righteousness of Christ put on your feet. Shoes with the readiness of the gospel. The Roman soldier had shoes with like little cleats in the bottom of it. They were sandals. They were real cute. They wrapped up high. You know, really fun. Had little nubs on the bottom of them so that they could stand in the midst of battle. He says, I want you to have shoes that are fitted with the readiness of the gospel. And he says, really, the peace of the gospel. You know what gives you sure-footedness in life? Peace. This week as I was preparing this message, it was the most peaceful week I've ever had. It was not. My children, God love them, wanted to fight about everything. I mean, it was one of those weeks where you look at a kid and you're like, just for this week, Disneyland or whatever you want all the time. And I kid you not, I'd be like, son, you can have candy, cookies, anything. I just need you to not yell. Like it it was at that moment as a parent. I'm not proud of this, but like I'm just being honest, all right? (laughs) And he got the cookies and stuff that he wanted at just the right amount. And then like 10 minutes later, he's yelling at me about something else that he wants. No one wants to play a game with me. I'm like... You're not going to be able to play games when I'm done with you, right? Like I just, 
And then another kid, like as soon as he calmed down, another kid would chime in, like my turn to yell, and another kid, and another screaming, and then a blown up diaper, and I'm like, oh my. And I'm reading this. The gospel of peace on your feet, right? You know, just, just, just peace skates. Like that's what we're doing through life. And I'm like, I'm like, no, like there is no peace. And then I thought about it. I'm like, I'm like, how does God grow that, right? How does God grow peace in our lives? You know how? He gives you the opportunity to practice. How do you practice peace? When you're in the midst of a war, right? Run by six-year-olds, right? Like when you're in the midst of a war, He says, I want you to think about the gospel. And what's the gospel? God loves me at my worst. He loves me when I'm yelling. He loves me in my darkest places and he still loves me. And I can be stable in that peace. You know, when when you're confronting your coworker and you're mad at them, you're angry and they're bitter or whatever. You know what gives you stability in the midst of that storm when you're tempted to fly off the handle? the peace of the gospel, that you're okay, that God still loves you. He loved you at his worst and he gave his best, that you have that stability from your feet, from your foundation, that you're loved by God, that you can be stable in him. Verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows. Hebrews 11.6 says this, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The shields were a a large um, wooden shield that was covered typically in, in animal skin so that when flaming arrows would come, they would be quenched once they hit. You see, Satan's gonna lob attacks at you. And you know what enables you to stand? Faith. What's faith? I believe this, that God believes, I believe he exists and that he rewards. And that will give you perseverance as you trust. No attack will be your, de- your death nail. I believe that God has me. I believe that God protects me. When the accusations come from the enemy, I believe that God has given his best and will help me to stand. And I can go against whatever's coming when I have faith in a God who cares for me and loves me. And I take up the helmet of salvation. Meaning, I believe that God has saved me and will care for me. See, one of the things that says in the Bible is this. You've got to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That means when every thought comes to your mind, you say, is that from God? For some of you, you so live under the weight of oppression because you feel like God doesn't love you or you feel like you have to earn your way back to God. But once you're saved, you're always saved. If you put your faith wholly and solely into Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you're not saved based on what you did. You're saved based on what he did. And if it's all based on what he did, you're never going to lose it. I love what Paul says in Romans. Can, Can anything separate us from the love of God? 
can death or opposition or anything, anything in all creation, no, because he sent his best to save you. And if you put your faith in him, you are secure. So put that on your head. Put that in your mind. There's nothing you can do that makes you lose the favor of God. And if you believed that the most important person in all creation values you, that will give you stability right to your mind. So when anyone says anything, you can say, you know what, but the king of the universe thinks I'm great. When anyone says anything about your future, you can say, but the king of the universe has got my future secure. And lastly, we take the sword of the spirit, the only clear offensive weapon. And if you look at the way Jesus interacted with Satan, it was the only weapon he used against Satan. You know what's crazy? Satan takes up that sword too. You see it? He quotes from Psalms. He says, hey, he'll give angels concerning you and you'll float down. It'll be really sweet. You know what Jesus was able to do with each one of those statements? He says, I know the truth. And I will find the right truth to counteract your lie. Can I challenge you? I think we live in a Bible church. We go to a Bible church. We read the Bible. We know a lot of Bible. And sometimes, I've heard this frequently from Christians, I can't solve my problems with just a Bible verse. And I know what they mean. That you need community. You need accountability. You need other people around you supporting you. Like the Bible in and of itself is not the only solution to every problem. If you mean, I don't need anyone else. But I'll tell you this. It seems that Jesus could stand against Satan by shouting out verses from Deuteronomy. Maybe the word of God is more powerful than you think. Maybe there is a way to attack back with the truth of the Bible. Maybe we, we say, I can't rely on the Bible alone is because we don't really know how to use it to confront an at- the attack that comes. For some of you, let me just challenge you with this. Are you in a home group that studies the Bible? Are you in a Bible study that gets into the word to see what it's actually saying and how it actually applies to your life? Are you surrounded by people that know and love you and that can speak the truth, give you the tools, give you the, gives you the swords to use to stand on faith in the midst of the onslaught? Let me tell you what, you cannot do this alone. You have to take up these weapons. That's what he says. And you do it in the context of community. He says you. I want you individually and corporately to take up these weapons so that you may stand. I've shared this story before, and this will be my last story in closing. One of my favorite YouTube videos um, occurred when a, uh, it was basically a story of a, of a, a nice little, it was a wildebeest on the, on a, in front of a pond of water. And it's this cute little wildebeest. And there's this guy there with his family kind of videotaping this thing. And you see the wildebeest like drinking water. It's like so cute. He goes, oh, look at this. And then suddenly out of nowhere, an alligator jumps up and chomps on his leg. Oh no. And as he's standing there getting pulled in, you see the guy on the camera going like, what do I do? Do I scream to help? Do I stop filming? No, I'm going to keep going, right? And so he's still filming this thing. And then suddenly you see across the way a group of lions, a pride of lions coming towards this baby wildebeest water buffalo. And at this point you're going like, this is horrible. I got to keep watching, right? (laughs) 
And suddenly this like jumps on top of that water buffalo and starts going into it. And you're like, he's going to die. Like, what are we going to do? And suddenly you see a group of water buffalo from the side led by what I think was the mama, right? And so, and so they come, this huge herd, and they go to the lion and just, boom, manhandles it off of them. And then you see the alligator be like, I don't want any part of this. It kind of lets go. And you look at them, the, the wildebeest kind of jump up and run off in the herd. And I'm like, that's it. That's the Christian life. You need buddies, preferably ones with horns, right? <laughs> Well played. <laughs> Sawed off one. What? <laughs> if you want to stand, we're going to try to wrap this up. <laughs> if you want to stand against the war, I'll tell you what you need. You need to be clothed in the armor of God because he loves you and he cares for you. You know what you need? You need men and women around you that love you too much to leave you as you are, that'll stand with you, that'll fight alongside of you, that'll help you lift the shield, help you with the words. They will help you fight because we are in a war and some of us are taking a lot of hits and not making a lot of stands. But I pray that if we take it on, we might be a force for, for Christianity in this community and that we'd be able to stand for one another that Grace Bible Church would be known not as a place that just knows the Bible, but actually fights for one another, that stands with one another. And they're known that when I come there, I see that there's a strength and a unity because they are clothed in the armor of God. And I want to be part of that community. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. And I thank you that, that you have given us the tools in the midst of the war, and they're not our tools, they're your tools. It's your truth. It's your righteousness. It's your gospel. It's your pieces that outfit us so that we might stand in the midst of a tough world. And Lord, I don't know the exact struggles of all of us in this room, but I do know that that we are being attacked and that we will continue to be attacked. So Lord, I pray that you would give people here, the the strength to stand and the community to stand with that we might continue to move the gospel forward in this community and stand and grow in you. We love you. I lift up these people to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys have a great Sunday.